Welcome to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast and part four of our series on human existential psychology with Dr. Drake Spath, Dr. John Ewing, and Kathy Kocher. Today our panelists discuss the search for awe. So um, can you summarize for us the existential humanist psychotherapy um, and why would uh, someone find that more attractive? Yeah. Uh, a functional definition. How, yeah. how is this helpful? Well, you know, a lot of existential therapists disagree on what good existential therapy is, but at the end of the day, I think that disagreement is healthy too. You know, I think we see that in other contexts that no one gets to be the voice but we can embrace the plurality of those things. So I will say that, you know, the European way of being an existential therapist is really to embrace this phenomenology idea that I mentioned earlier, that um, we look at our experience in social contexts and we look at how embedded we are in those social contexts. We, face the limitations um, imposed by death, embodiedness, isolation, being thrown into circumstances over which we have no control. They really connect in Europe more strongly with those philosophical traditions and origins. And then there's some, some other approaches like Ernesto Spinelli comes to mind where his approach is all about, I know nothing about you as a therapist and i don't presume that i do i don't even have a bias that becoming whole is a good thing for you but we are here because you're feeling some kind of pain and let's explore that together i'm not going to impose any predispositions or any ideas like i'm the expert and i know anything about you but I can sit here with you in this stew and, you know, and I can be this sort of reflection for what it is that you want to do. I mean, they even think Carl Rogers is too pushy for crying out loud, this idea of moving toward wholeness. And, you know, no one in the U.S. would see Carl Rogers as directive or pushy, you know. So, <laughs> um, so there's that European kind of idea. And then Emmy Van Dersen, who I dearly love, she says, we talk about these grandiose ideas of death, anxiety, and suffering. What about the day-to-day -day miseries that we all face and sometimes just getting to the end of the day when we've had this series of hassles that hold us back and exhaust us? Let's celebrate those triumphs, you know, as well. <laughs> um, but anyway, there's this love of the philosophy and the connection over there. And here in the US, there's been this flavor of pragmatism, like um, even William James, the founder of one of the founders of psychology, he and uh, Dewey were philosophically, they were pragmatists. And that's what gave rise to American pragmatism, James and Dewey and some of their philosophy. Well, James also really was um, kind of a precursor of humanistic psychology and some existential notions too. And so that pragmatic flavor of doing what works well 
you know, and what feels like it fits for me has become more of the flavor of existential and even humanistic work over here. Um, and there's a lot more emphasis, in my opinion, on anxiety and the meaning of anxiety and, and the awareness of death on this side of the pond, whereas they focus on social relationships and embeddedness over there and the phenomenological traditions and trying to be an unknowing mirror with the client over here. We really have this idea that it is going somewhere pragmatically and that's a movement toward wholeness and authenticity and um, kind of an awakening and an organization to being more of ourself in challenging times when so much of what's happening out there tries to pull us to be something we don't identify with and we feel that we are not. So Drake, we touched on this pragmatic aspect of yeah. therapy and dealing yeah. with the emotions that we don't like. Um, yeah. So we've got this origin of emotions which yeah. we have the top-down emotions that start out with cognitive processes. Uh, NCBT helps a lot with that. Then we yeah. have this bottom-up yeah. uh, source of, of uh, some of it's rooted in emotional learning that's below that level of consciousness. How yeah. might a existential humanistic psychotherapist get at that and, yeah. and, and help? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked that because, you know, it's really the psychodynamic therapists and everything that's come out of that tradition that talk about an unconscious um, and any piece of there, there being something like even Carl Jung, who sort of went his own way from those psychodynamic origins, he still retained that concept of the unconscious. And in fact, said it goes even deeper to the collective unconscious, you know? <laughs> so it's something deeper than Freud ever conceived of. A humanistic psychologist and an existential psychologist won't really generally talk about the word, the word unconscious unless they have been strongly influenced like Yalom has by the psychoanalytic and psychodynamic traditions. Yalom has talked about unconscious um, and those who come out of a psychodynamic tradition to embrace existential concepts talk about an unconscious. But Carl Rogers, Fritz Perls, some of the humanistic psychologists and therapists, you won't hear them talk about the unconscious mind. The closest they get to talking about an unconscious is they'll say something is not an awareness and we might be trying to bring something into awareness. Now, where it is when it's out of awareness is anyone's guess. <laughs> but that's the difference between working in the here and now, because philosophically, in a humanistic understanding, the present moment is all we have. Everything else is an illusion. Our ongoing memory of the past, this autobiographical sense of our ongoing story, our memories of what happened, Adler showed all of that stuff was heavily biased and subjective and could change when someone talks about it in different circumstances of their life. It's an illusion. The past is an illusion. The present is all we have and then it's gone. It's disappeared into the future. You know, the future is an illusion 
you know, until it manifests in that like split second moment of present awareness. So right here is all we have. And now that's gone. And now that's gone. And now that's gone. So there's no unconscious per se. There's only present moment unfolding and experiencing. Well, fortunately, the present moment is non-local. And this is mm -hmm. what facilitates the progression of time and events. Yeah. So at the surface level where we think cognitively about things, we often arrange our idea of the world into structures. And I think the value of the existential uh, approach is that to, is to realize that, yeah, those, those are going to crumble. They don't actually mean anything. But then deep down, those feelings that come from within come yeah. from sources that um, it's difficult to make sense of at that intellectual level. How yes. does existential humanistic psychotherapy help people to understand yeah. and work with those forces? Well, now you're reminding me of the work of Eugene Genlin, which some of us may remember back in the 70s, there was this tiny little book called Focusing. And then in the 80s, it turned into a manual for psychotherapy called Focusing Oriented Psychotherapy. And what Genlin did was take Carl Rogers' work and make it about our merging somatically based what he called the bodily felt sense of something that's wordless you know so psychotherapy would be very experiential in the moment and helping the person kind of get a handle on and then grasp and then slowly put into some verbal approximation an emerging felt sense the best way that i can describe this is if you know, it's a very easy sort of exercise to do. If you close your eyes for a minute and you bring to mind someone that you love, just stop and pay attention to what your body is doing in connection with that image of the person that you deeply care about and love, you know, and just hone in on almost like mindfulness, paying attention to what somatically is happening, even the small subtle things then you let that go away and you bring to mind someone you struggle with that you have some sort of adversarial connection or some somebody who you associate with stress then you also pay attention to what happens to your body and you start to get a sense of how you're somatically involved in what it is that you are feeling and you are experiencing and then for me, the huge aha was, oh my gosh, my body is doing this all the time in the presence of everything in my house, in the presence of everyone in my life, moment to moment. There's this sense of my chest opening, you know, and feeling light and feeling warm in the presence of things that I'm attracted to or drawn to. And then there's this closing, restrictive tightness that starts to enter in. You know, you take something like that and you start to get an idea of what Genlin meant by the felt sense. And then that is a wordless understanding that's trying to emerge. And if we can approximate it verbally, there can be something that Genlin called the felt shift, you know, the sense of release, 
aha. It's like, you know, what happens when you argue with a loved one for hours and it's exhausting and there's a hopeless feeling that kind of comes in, you know, banging your head against the wall. Maybe you've had to separate, take breaks, and then you come at it and lock horns again. That same hopelessness enters in. But then one of you says something maybe just a little differently. Who knows? Something shifts. And then suddenly, oh my gosh, I feel like you finally hear me. And now we're working together and it feels like we're building something together. You know, a lot of that is wordless. <laughs> and when we can finally get our brains to sort of contain it, there's a lot of satisfaction about that, but it starts in our bodies first. And we've gotten so separated and alienated from our bodies. Um, you know, I think Jung talks about it as the participation mystique that we had earlier in the evolution, earlier in our evolution, where we were closer to the natural world. We didn't think in verbal terms per se, but like the animals and plants, we were simply part of the world. And in our verbal separation from that, we sort of severed this connection to the somatic wisdom. I like to call it, when I teach about it with my students, the body has its own wisdom and it's time we start paying attention to it. Um, that embodiedness can be a teacher in many ways. So Kathy, what's missing from this conversation? I'm not sure. There's so much and it's at such an amazing level. I think for, for me as a clinician, how do I take this and translate it to a more easily acceptable language. Yeah. That's one piece. And then the other piece is I can't help but compare and contrast what we're talking about with my life experience and going, but I'm not feeling terror. Should I be feeling terror? I'm not terrified. Yeah. I'm actually, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like depressed to the point that I'm okay with it, but, yeah. and I'm not really excited about it, but I'm accepting of it. And yeah. Yeah. So I'm, and I and then I think, well, I'm not that. I'm not that psychologically adept. What am I missing? Am I avoiding? Am I really, <laughs> really good at avoiding and distracting? And then and then I start overthinking and I go down the rabbit hole. So, yeah. you know. But it's interesting. But I I had the terror with the first cancer diagnosis in the early 90s when I was a single mom of a nine-year-old and I was terrified that I was gonna die and yeah. leave an orphan and my parents were gonna lose a child. And, and that was so interesting because it wasn't, oh my God, I'm going to die. It was, my parents are going to suffer, my child yes. is going to suffer. Yeah. And, and I used that, I was incredibly lucky. I just had a surgery and it went away, but I used that as a motivator. So I went from a dead-end job to getting a college education and an advanced degree and moving into what I've always viewed as a calling, which is psychotherapy. Um, and then the second time I had it, there was, there was no terror. I thought the amount of money we put into treating breast cancer, I have no doubt I'm going to be fine. Yeah. And the medical team said, yeah, bump in the road. Don't worry about it. It's going to mm. be painful, but you're going you're gonna to be, you're going to come out. I'm like, okay. Yeah. And I did. And this time when they said, you know, stage four, I thought, well, okay, I've had a good run. This is probably it. Now I get to, now I get to 
find out what the mystery is. Yeah. Now I get to transition. I get to step over the threshold and be like, okay, no streets paved with gold, which I always thought was physically impossible. <laughs> and, you know, kind of a little more Zen, a little more Buddhist, you know, we can't, we can't take energy away. So my energy is going to still be there somewhere, but it's not going to be perceiving everything through this meat sack. So I know it's going to be yeah. different, completely different experience. I don't know how much of me in air quotes I'll take with me. Yeah. And then I had this amazing experience at the botanical gardens the other day. I think we have time for me to explain it. Of course. Um, they have blooming butterflies at Obrick Conservancy, and I love going every year. And I take a, a former, a, well, a friend who's also a coworker um, with me last year and this year. And one of the butterflies has emotional significance for her because she lost her brother and this butterfly appeared. And, and so we're, we're sitting there and one of these butterflies is laying on a leaf and appears to be dead. And this other butterfly comes and hovers over it, flapping its wings somewhat maniacally, just flap, 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 flap. And it doesn't appear to have any influence on this air quote dead butterfly. And it leaves and it comes back. We're assuming the same one because it had the same behavior. And then it, and we're joking, oh look, it's doing butterfly CPR, ha ha ha. And, and then we look and it's, it's, it's touching it in a way that we're thinking, Oh my gosh, is it bringing it sugar water? What's what's going on? And it does that. And I joked and said mouth to mouth resuscitation, you know, because they're butterflies, they're insects, you know, what do they know, right? And it flies away. And before it flies back again, the dead butterfly raises its wings. And we're like, mm. it was such a moment of awe. It was such a moment of awareness that these insects that we think are just, they just evolve out of the mush that was the caterpillar. They're alive long enough to breed and lay eggs. That's it. But appear to have some sentience, appear to have this, this drive to survive. And I looked at her and I said, because this was the butterfly that she identified with her brother. And I said, was your brother a helper? She said, oh yeah. <laughs> and so we ascribed in the true postmodern sense, we ascribe to this butterfly being connected to her brother. But I've been thinking about that a lot lately, that we as humans have this innate um, hubris that we're the only ones that can do these things. And here I saw these two beautiful butterflies mm. interact in a way that appeared to bring this one butterfly back to life. And we sat and watched it for quite a while. Didn't get to witness it fly away because we got distracted and needed to move up the bench and go go see what we had to save a quail from an overly curious child. But um, it was it was just the most amazing experience. Mm -hmm. And I felt a shift within myself about life in general and energy and sentience and meaning. How beautiful. It was a, this, it was a gift. Yeah. This recognition yeah. that there is love and care in the world. It's like, oh my gosh, that it's, opens us to the brightness yeah. of being. Yeah. It's not just us. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. and then 
and then looking at, at gorillas getting excited to see a human baby and yeah. monkeys being thrilled and hysterically laughing at a, at a magic trick. I, I've had a lot of isolation because it came also a lot of my life has been involved with Facebook lately, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, but just seeing these little snippets and just going, wow, yeah, why, why do we think it's just us? Wow. Well, what, what a testament to the value and power of awe. I mean, if yeah. there ever was one and um, what really strikes me about what you're saying is that you I mean, I heard you mention that there was a moment of terror that you were associating with loved ones early on, but you've moved well past that. I mean, you've done the, you've done the encounter and now you're letting awe do its work with its connection to some of these things. I mean, I just can't think of, of anything more beautiful in many ways. Um, well, and I'm, I'm, thank you. I appreciate the validation of that because there's part of me thinking at some point I'm going to get scared. At some point I'm going to be terrified. Perhaps. And the takeaway from this discussion is that's normal. Yeah. That's how it's supposed to be. I'm stepping into the unknown. If I was not scared to do that, yeah, there would be something diagnosably wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And again, in this paradigm, you know, we we don't like have that judgment of wrong or we don't diagnose those those reduce the human being too much to something that, yeah. you know, it's that that's too small of a box to contain them. And I love the also the affirmation in what you're saying that if I could have a critique, for instance, of Rollo May, he said human beings are the only ones who are aware of their own death. And yet I see elephants who seem to have that awareness and engage in ceremony and mourning behavior and grief. So there's hubris for you to think that, you know, we human beings are set apart somehow from the rest of the animal kingdom in the world. And, and, you know, there's a degree of consciousness and maybe even sentience that is there that, you know, that, it's, you know, from an eco psychological perspective, it might be a time to really embrace that you know well in the the bird chirp frequency and how yeah. the, the frequency of a bird's chirp actually expands the ability of plant cells to open and photosynthesize and it's yeah. like well that's yeah. kind of like enjoyment i feel the same way when i listen to certain songs yeah. certain songs i'm like yes <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. and how trees communicate with each other through the mycelial network of mushrooms and, you know, yes. and that this might be the Earth's worldwide web if there ever was one, you know, that so <laughs> much happens in the soil, you know, through the mycelium. And yeah. So, yes, these are the things where it allows, at least from, from my perspective, for humility to enter the picture, you know, <laughs> and to let go of the human hubris piece. And I think the, I love, I love my profession. I love our profession. Mm -hmm. I love working with people. I love the, the honor that I feel when people allow me into their lives, especially family systems. It's like, oh my God, I feel so privileged to be allowed into that, that, that venue to, to muck yes. about and try to help things work better. It still just fills me with awe to do that. And what I've gotten in touch with during this discussion today that I'm a little embarrassed to realize I hadn't 
quite caught before was mm-hmm. our dependence on hierarchy mm-hmm. and and how our dependence on hierarchy and structure and our need to order order and and create this ideology about behaviors really does create a bigger boat and no boat in the storm we're in. And I'm yeah. I'm so intensely uncomfortable with that right now. Yeah. That I just wanna I wanna run out the street and scream, we're all in the same storm. Let's just <laughs> give everybody a flipping boat. You know? Right. Yeah, I mean, how privileged, right? To say we're all in the same boat, you know, really? Look at all those people who are out there with no boat. <laughs> I've got a kayak. I'm scared, all right? Yeah. <laughs> but no. You, yeah. you mentioned, Kathy, the impossibility of streets paved with gold. And um, it brought to mind that heaven just means the bright place, the which we think of as above. And the word hell is a cousin of the word hole, like a hole in the, you know, a cave into the darkness. And yeah, I think that we do that with this alternation between hope and dread mm. that we experience. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. that heaviness that can come with dread. Um, I think what you were saying at the very beginning of all this, Drake, is that there is value in embracing that void and experiencing that dread and getting through to the other side. Yeah. That's another Joseph Campbell thing. The cave we fear to enter holds the treasure we seek. (laughs) Remind me never to go camping with Joseph Campbell. (laughs) (laughs) How do you feel about caves? Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think sometimes uh, in various religious teachings, uh, children construct this cartoon view of the universe um, and they miss the metaphor and they think of heaven as this actual place uh, and hell as this actual place um and then the they do recognize yes this these beings these entities that have their own agenda that operate in this universe in this uh other space besides human interaction that i think yeah we do contend with in that inner world yeah yeah and what and we know that things that we develop as a belief system as a child be it related to trauma or being something that's been taught to us unless we pull it out and look at it in the light periodically as we go through life it just stays there as a belief system so that's that's one of the things i i tell people when we're doing trauma work that was a four-year-old memory, a six-year-old memory, a 10-year-old memory. We need to bring it out now at 18, 20, 30, 40 and look at it in this context and change change it, change the, 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 the function of it and the purpose of it, the meaning of it. It can be yeah. different. Yeah, oh, is- by, by the way, Kathy, I feel like there's such a source of awe potentially in that family systems work too with the multi-generational emphasis i mean 
in this moment, in the here and now, you know, speaking in my language with it, working with this client, working with the family, and looking at the genogram, you know, which shows the family tree history of, you know, the events that happened and how the trauma cascades down the generation and knowing that it ends here. And we're actively now choosing with this awareness, this full, having more of ourselves from our, this ancestral piece, we get to not pass this on to the descendants in mm -hmm. the future. What a powerful thing to stop that cascade of pain in that moment. Yeah. I, I think a lot in metaphors and my metaphor for that is just, here's your, here's your family riding on this bicycle and then we're gonna stick a stick in the spoke. Yeah, it just stops. <laughs> and everybody's going to fling about, and some people are going to get hurt, and some people are yes. going to roll with it. But this is a big shift. Yeah. And now we have to figure out how to take the stick out of the spoke, fix the bike, get your family back on it, and keep rolling. Love it. Thank you for listening to the Spirit Like Wellness podcast. Spirit Like Wellness is a 501c3 dedicated to health and wellness education. Learn more at spiritlikewellness.org.